We're returning this morning to Ephesians and looking at uh, chapter 3. For the next several weeks, actually, we'll be looking at uh, Paul's uh, second prayer in this, uh, this great letter, in verses 14 to, uh, to 19, and then the doxology that comes right after that in verses 20 and 21. It's, it's almost uh, sin to try and cover it in one week, so I decided to try and cover it in a month. Um, I, I may be able to make it, I'm not sure. Um, but you'll remember that this is uh, really, this is the prayer that he began in verse 1. He began it there, and then all of a sudden he broke off to substantiate his ministry, and now he returns to it. So verses 2 through 13, of course, were a parenthesis in, in his, uh, his thinking. And he picks up now in verse 14. I'm going to read all the verses 14 through 21 and uh, to keep the context in mind because that will be incredibly important as we move through. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our fathers, we read these words by uh, your great servant, uh, Paul. We recognize that uh, it is filled with such uh, uh, a sense of anticipation of uh, the joy that he has in your love for him and for us. And we recognize that there's so much that obscures that in our own experience. And yet our desire is once again to be refreshed in your love and by your love. And to respond anew to your love. We ask that as we encounter this prayer and as your spirit drives it home to our hearts. That over the course of these next weeks we might come to a, a new and deeper appreciation for how much you treasure us. And in that Lord to find not just joy but strength for living. For we ask these things in Jesus name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, Herbert Jackson was a missionary, and uh, he was once speaking to a uh, missions class in a seminary. And um, he talked about how, as a new uh, uh, man on the field, he'd been assigned a, a car uh, for his job to go around visiting uh, people and uh, go in the places he needed to go. But it wouldn't start without a push. And so he, uh, he tried to think of about the best way to deal with it, and uh, hit upon the idea of going to the local school 
and asking uh, the, the teacher there if he could borrow some of the kids for a few minutes. And um, she said, uh, oh, okay. And uh, he, he took the kids outside and he had them push the car so that he could jump start it. And once he got it jump started, uh, he would drive on to his appointment. And when he got to his appointment, he'd either park it at the top of a hill or he'd leave it running. He did that for two years. Two years, that's the way he got around. Well, ill health uh, forced him and his family to leave the field. And as a, as a new missionary was coming to the station, uh, Jackson began to tell him about how he had, uh, you know, gone through this whole issue with the car for a couple of years. And, you know, in very rigorous detail, wanted to lay out for the new guy how to handle it. And, uh, and while he's talking, the new guy uh, opens up the hood and he's diddling under the thing. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the, the man says, oh, Dr. Jackson, he says, I think maybe the problem is just this loose wire here. And he reaches in and he, he twists the wire and he, he goes around, he gets in the car. Boom! Car starts right up. For two years, needless trouble had been Jackson's routine. Needless trouble had been his routine because the power was there all the time. Only a loose connection kept Jackson from putting that power to work. It's really interesting because when you read the scriptures, you see that God God gives us power. In fact, J.B. Phillips, uh, when he paraphrases uh, uh, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, says how tremendous is the power available to us who believe in God. In other words, God's, God's life and powers is meant to flow through us. Now, that's easy to say, isn't it? But how does it happen? I mean, how do we find real power, God's power, for instance, to, to overcome temptation and sin? To be able to live as Christian people with hope and with joy before the world, serving out of, out of glad hearts rather than a, an attitude of having to do it. Well, that's precisely what Paul comes to here as he, as he lays out the way in which the love of God for us actually becomes the power we need for living. Now, I don't know about you, but I rarely associate the power that I need for living with the love of God. Oh, yeah, I mean, indirectly I do. But by and large, I, I figure I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and, and I do what most of us do, right, when I'm, when I'm challenged with something. I figure, okay, this is what i got to do, X, Y, Z, and I, and I commit myself to doing it. And like you, I fall flat on my face lots of times. Right? Because that's, that's just not where the power comes from. The power doesn't come from self-control. The power doesn't come from, I'm going to, I will something. You know, in Scripture, the power comes from God. And specifically, what we're going to find is that the power comes to us from God's love. And that's Paul's contention, very specifically in this prayer. That the sanctifying power that we need for this life comes from an apprehension, a deep and abiding understanding of God's potent love for us. 
Now, I think it's important that we substantiate that, that we look at that first as, as, as just a, the overall picture because this entire prayer is built on that premise and leads to that conclusion. And unless we have that in mind, the, the first few verses aren't going to make any sense to us whatsoever. Because Paul, of course, moves very logically. He's, he's, he thinks like a Greek and like a Jew, uh, unlike most of us. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. So, it's been said that a, a moth would not be tempted to the flame of a candle if it only had eyes to see the sun. Right? That, and that's true. You know, moths, they're, they're drawn to what, what's light. But if they could see the sun, they wouldn't bother with a little candle flame. No, they'd fly to the sun. In fact, Thomas Chalmers used that as an, exil- as an example of what he called the expulsive power of a new affection. He was preaching once on the, uh, the text in 1 John, 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And in that sermon, Chalmers contended that there are only two possible ways that we can rid ourselves of the love of the world or the love of vain things and, and actually find the power to live the way God wants us to live. He says the first choice is, is fairly obvious, and it's the one that many of us choose. He says, and that is to simply say, you know, I'm just going to withdraw my affection from that object. It's not worthy of me. And so, for instance, bad habits or sin, we just say, oh, you know, I, I just don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to love that anymore. But Chalmers says that really doesn't work. Because the problem is, is that all that does is creates a spiritual vacuum. He says the human heart yearns to set its affection on something. And in fact, as we look at our own lives or look at the lives of others, we will find it quite true that people will set their hearts on things that are outrageously foolish and even destructive just to have their hearts set on something, anything. I have to love something. And Chalmers is right. If we just think that somehow we can just send that thing off, take, remove our affection from it, that we're going to be free of it. But that's not the way it happens. In fact, Jesus says that very clearly in Matthew chapter 12. Listen to what he says. He says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and doesn't find it. Oh, that poor demon. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Uh Uh-oh. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. That's nice. But then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they all go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. See, nature abhors a vacuum. And we can't just say, I'm not going to give my affections to that anymore. It doesn't work. But that's why Chalmers says the only other option is to set ourselves, our hearts, our affections upon something that is more powerful, that is more desirable 
than the thing that we want to be rid of. He says that's the only one that can really work. You know, if you set a set a hungry frog right up here, okay, and you put a piece of cheese in front of him, and you put a fly in front of him, which one do you think he's going to eat? He's going to eat the fly. Why is he going to eat the fly? Because he likes flies best. Okay, he likes flies more than cheese. And what's true of frogs is true of people. Now, I don't mean that we like flies more than cheese. I actually like it the other way around. But here's the thing. The simple fact of the matter is, is that, that God made us to pursue what makes us happiest. What satisfies us the most deep down inside. And the scriptures teach us that God really is the only thing that can do that. He made us for himself. That's why the psalmist, for instance, cries out, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness, that we may sing and be glad all our days. Now, what is the psalmist saying there? He's saying, satisfy me with your goodness. Why? So I can be happy. Not just today, but every day. And the psalmist knew that that's the way that life is made. That's the way he is constructed. To find his highest delight in God. How is it that Paul, when he writes his epistles, say the epistle to the Romans, for instance, can in the first 11 chapters showcase the glory and the great love and grace of God toward us? And then in those last few chapters, say, go and live thus. Well, he can do it because once you are enraptured with who God is and what he's done, the idea of living the way he wants you to live, it's a slam dunk. Of course you want to do that. Mary Ellen wrote, uh, read those, uh, uh, she didn't write it, no. But she read those, uh, those verses out of Matthew 13 where Jesus teaches the same thing. Says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. From joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon it, finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In other words, the person who's enamored with Christ and enamored with the gospel and all that it means, everything else begins to pale in comparison. So Chalmers' idea of of this expulsive power of a new affection, of of having our minds and hearts enraptured and captured by someone or something greater than sin, temptation, or problems, or circumstances, or ourselves, is the only really substantial way out. It's It's like a spiritual syrup of Ipecac. You know what a syrup of Ipecac is? A little sip of that, baby, and it'll take out everything that's a problem. Right? It just expels it. And that's what this happens. The same thing happens in the heart. The question that comes to my mind, and I suspect probably comes to yours too, is is it really that simple? 
Is that all there is? Is our power in our passions? I mean, that's a, that's a worthy question of asking. In other words, because we do what we love to do the most, is the power for spiritual change found in the very things that we set our affections on? Yes. The answer is yes. Since that is so, we have to also understand that it is our affections that become the very power to do what we want to do. And because that's true, the greater our affections, the greater the power. And that has huge implications for dealing with temptation and sin. I've been a pastor for nearly 30 years, and I have, I've counseled people on, I can't tell you, countless things. But one of the things that's always struck me is the number of people that want to change their habits, they want to get out from underneath their compulsions, their besetting sins, their, their addictions. And so I've studied and I've counseled and I've preached on accountability and the cultivation of godly habits and the exercise of the spiritual disciplines. And they're all well and good in their own place. And God has given them a place. But if what controls our affections, controls our actions, controls us, then renewing our affections for God is also our power for holiness. Renewing our affection for God is also the power of for holiness. And that is exactly where Paul is going in this prayer. He says that knowing the magnitude, the greatness of God's love for us creates the expulsive power of a new affection. Because it's just like in any human relationship. When you know someone loves you, what is your natural response? It is to love in return, at least to some degree. And that's where Paul is going. God's love for us, once it's embraced and delighted in, changes our own response to him. And therein lies the power for holiness and for godliness. Now, Paul shows us now in these first verses from 14 and 15 why we can be confident that such power can be ours. Now, there are two reasons that he lays out here, and the first is this, that we are humbled by what God has done in making the church his dwelling place. There's something that happens to us when we understand that God has made us his people and dwells in us. That's what he reveals in these opening words of verse 14. He says, for this reason. Now, you also remember that because he's, beginning, he's picking up on this prayer, it takes you right back to verse 1, for this reason. Okay, he's repeating himself. Oh, I forgot, that's where I was. And so back he goes. So when he says, for this reason, he's talking about everything that's in chapter 2. That's what he's referring back to. Everything that he said in chapter 2 now becomes the reason for his confidence. And what does he say there? Well, 
I mean, it's just too much to cover it all, but you remember that he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's the kindness and mercy of God. He has he's created good works for you to walk in, that you might bring him honor and glory. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. He says, you're being built together into the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And as Paul goes through this and he's remembering the very words that he's just said, it just, it stuns him. Remember, he's a Jew, okay? He is one of God's chosen people. And they've been walking around thinking that they're the only ones for over a thousand years. And all of a sudden, God has begun to reveal to him, really, the magnitude of what he's doing in creating the church. That he is bringing people from everywhere, from every background, from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every, every nationality, every race. And he's, he's, he's indwelling them, and he's bringing together this, 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 this living structure in which he himself, the almighty God, dwells. And Paul's knees buckle. They buckle with the grandeur. As a matter of fact, he hears the angels singing the praises of God as his knees buckle. Because as they behold it, they're saying to themselves, who is this God who has done such a thing? This is astonishing. This is astounding to us. So Paul says he falls on his knees. It humbles him. He thought he knew what God was about. Now he's beginning to understand it in an entirely different sense. And the fact that he, he falls to his knees is really important because traditionally Jews prayed standing. Just the way you see him standing and, and praying today at the Wailing Wall. They only fell on their knees at those moments when they were incredibly overwrought with emotion or when they were giving great homage to God. The way Solomon did, for instance, when he dedicated the temple. And for Paul, he sees these these sinners, all these sinners, even Gentile sinners being being brought together and saved and made into this place that God lives by his spirit. And it astounds him. And so when Paul refers to, for this reason, what he's referring to is that we have a new identity as those in whom God has chosen to live, not just individually, but corporately. And there, there we find great confidence that something astonishing is taking place. And God is about some work that we have very real little grasp on. But the second reason we can be confident that such power can be ours is because we can be confident of the very relationship we have with him. Notice that what Paul does when he falls on his knees, he doesn't say, oh, great God of glory. Oh, triune master. He calls him, what? Father. 
Father. Because even though God is doing this marvelous thing, he knows that something of deep intimacy is also taking place. That as God brings people into his kingdom, he brings them into this relationship, this this father, this parent-child relationship. He adopts them as his own. And then this is this is this great depth of hope that this one who has adopted us isn't going to abandon us, but that we can have every confidence coming into his presence that he loves us and we can approach him. Once there was a young man who went on a missions trip to, uh, to Romania and he spoke in a church where it was still a tradition that all the women sat on one side, all the men sat on the other side, and there was a partition down the middle that it may ever be so. And while they were going through the service, the young man was speaking, and, uh, and uh, he noticed that there was a little girl sitting over here, and uh, uh, she had a little flower in her hand. And she was looking around, and she looked over on the other side, and she saw her father over there. Well, she got down on the floor and she kind of crawled over to the partition and she looked around and she crawled over the partition. And when her father saw her, well, he did what fathers would normally do. He just reached out and picked her up, put her on her lap, wrapped his arms around her. And then she, she took that flower and confident that it was okay, she stuck it up under his nose And he just inhaled as though it was the most profoundly beautiful perfume he'd ever smelled in his life. Now, in some ways, the actions of this father and this daughter make no sense at all. See, she'd been wrong, right? She had done what was wrong. Her culture, it was was not she wasn't supposed to leave the women. She wasn't supposed to cross over the partition. She wasn't to forsake tradition. Perhaps she wasn't even supposed to pick the flower she had in her little fist. Yet she offered that humble gift to her father because she was confident that in the father's love, he would accept it. That is, the the sweetness of his heart, if you were, if it were, drew her in spite of her transgressions. She knew what she was doing was wrong, but she went to him anyway. That's the nature of the gospel that Paul is wrapping up in this word, Father. And why is it that he reiterates this? Why Why does he bring this understanding of the the gospel to us to deal with some some confidence? Well, I think it's fairly easy if we think about it for even a moment. What is the first thing you do when you get down to pray before God? I don't know about, I'm trusting that you're probably not so different than myself. But the first thing I do is I feel like David or Isaiah. Right? Isaiah says, 
Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I am undone in front of this holy God. And David in Psalm 51 says, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are righteous when you judge me. When I, when I get before God, the first thing I'm aware of is the fact that I'm a sinner. Our sins are ever-present, aren't they? They're always in front of us. And even though we know we can put them under the blood of Christ, the demons are there, they're just whispering in our ears, bringing them back up just as quickly as we can bury them. But perhaps worse than most of the ones we, we deal with in that way is the transgression of the very thing that Paul is talking about here. Because what is it that Paul is saying? Paul is basically saying, if we love God enough, because we're responding to his incredible love to us, then the expulsive power of a new affection is going to mean that we're going to set those things of the world, those vain things, those temptations and sins, more and more behind us. But is that our experience? No, our experience is very different. As a matter of fact, what we really do is that we don't want to face that reality. And we, 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 we obscure it. So it's not quite as pointed and painful. And we say to ourselves, well, you know, I I messed up. I failed my Savior again. I was weak. I gave in. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that if our sin is an expression of our true love, what we're really saying is that at the moment I sinned, I loved my sin more than I loved my Savior. That's the issue. Who do you love? Remember the old song, don't you? Who do you love? I'm not going to try and sing that for you. But this, see, this reality, it can be completely devastating to us. We just, we look at ourselves and we say, I am undone, woe to me. Where can I go now? What am I supposed to do? I, don't, I obviously don't love God. I, I don't love Jesus. Look at me. I'm, a, I'm in sin all the time. And what does Paul say in response to that? He says, you're right. You don't love God enough. But he loves you. You and a world full of people like you. Despite your humanity, your humiliation, and your sin, the Father loves you because you are a member of his family, of his household. This is what is meant to encourage us, to give us confidence that when we come to God, when we pray, he will hear us because he loves us. Because we are bought blood-bought by Jesus Christ, his Son. That 
brethren, is the power that the gospel offers. James Dobson tells the story of a friend of his when they were in medical school who was walking from one class to another one day, you know, carrying his briefcase and some books and stuff. And he was hungry and he was walking past one of these little shacks that they have on campuses. And, you know, there was a guy who was selling food and stuff. And he stopped and he got a quick meal. And, uh, and a milkshake to wash it all down with. And he was balancing it on his, uh, his briefcase and uh, looking for a, a place to sit, you know, because it was like a little uh, uh, seating area with tables and chairs. And he's looking for a place to sit and eat. And uh, uh, while he was looking, uh, his, his appetite and his desire for the milkshake got the better of him. So he, he went down to put the straw in his mouth so he could get a little sip while he was still looking. And, uh, and instead of getting the straw in his mouth, he got it up his nose. Now he's really embarrassed. But he's not the kind of guy who's just going to kind of, you know, really do something stupid. So he figures, you know, if I just raise my head confidently and everything else, you know, it'll just come out and I can continue on. The problem was is the straw did not come out. And as he lifted up his head, you know what it's like when you take a straw out of a liquid. Well, it was still full of the liquid, and it dribbled milkshake all down the front of his suit. And in that moment, all of his confidence evaporated. He just, he came undone. Well, if you focus, right, if you focus on your foolish mistakes when you make them, you will find yourself embarrassed and humbled, and your confidence is going to vanish too. But Paul is telling us that when we focus on God, when we focus on the great work and plan of God and our inclusion in it by his grace, that we can be confident of his power to deal with our temptation and our sin and all the other needs of our lives, that it will be ours. And in the coming weeks... We're going to see how he develops this great truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, uh, we are hungry. Hungry for the kind of power that you say can be ours. But we're so enamored of power in the world. Which is not the power that you propose to give us. We think of things that are explosive, things that we control, things that do exactly what we want them to do, but that's not what your love is actually going to produce. And it's not the way it works. Help us, Father, to to really desire to know more and more how your, your great love for us produces the power to live the way you want us to live. Because we know that where Paul goes from here and the rest of this this epistle is precisely to that point. How are we then to live? Help us, Father, because we want to live that way for your glory. We love you as best we can, but we want to love you more. Thank you for the anticipation we have that you will lead us to a greater understanding and experience of that. 
For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.